everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. Hey everyone, welcome back to another Turbo. I want to get away from some of the procedural topics we've been passing through recently uh, and move on to something perhaps a little bit softer. Uh, This is the question of calmness. The idea of remaining calm, cool, collected, unflappable in a clinical context, this is something that many people feel is important, an asset, a skill even, for um, clinicians, but especially those who work in more high-acute settings, such as the ICU, emergency medicine, and so on. Um, And there's certainly truth to that, but there's a lot to unpack here, which is is more subtle and uh, more complicated than just saying that it's important to stay calm. So let's take a closer look at this topic. I think that the idea of, of calmness in an emergency setting is not just one thing, but actually several, and, and maybe it's three things. On one level, it's an emotion that you feel. On another level, it's a message that you communicate to those around you. And then, uh, and this is where it gets a little deep, it's also something you perceive that comes back to you from that message that you sent out. It's not one way, it's two way. Let me explain. As an emotion, calmness is obviously your personal response to the things that you're seeing and hearing and feeling and experiencing. It is an emotion that you, uh, your kind of person is perceiving as things go on. And certainly it is therefore subject to your own personality. So some people may just tend to be calmer and some people may tend to be a little bit more anxious, a little bit more keyed up at baseline and therefore not as equipped just starting out to have a calm reaction to things. However, no matter where you start, this is not just a a nature sort of thing. It is also something learnable and something that is subject to control and input. So this could be things like training. The first time you experience something, there are a lot of reasons for you to be anxious about it, worried about it, and to maybe experience a a physiologic stress response to it uh, because it's alarming to you. Now, the 40th time you experience it, no matter what it is, you have become more habituated to it, and it's much more likely to uh, strike you as being a, a more everyday routine thing than as something that you should be worried about. What about the ability to learn stress control and calmness as a, a skill in its own. There's something to that as well. Uh, so, you know, some of the basic tools here are things like breathing. If you are starting to feel yourself get revved up, just to consciously take a deep breath. Perhaps hold it and let it out. Now, people will prescribe specific breathing patterns, like you, you breathe over two or three seconds, you hold it for a few seconds. There's square breathing and, you know, breathing used by uh, people who meditate and snipers and various people who need to control their 
their heart rates and their sympathetic tone. Um, but the basic idea here is just to uh, establish a moment of calm. And breathing is a good tool for that because it really bridges between your, your conscious control of your thoughts and emotions and your unconscious autonomic system. Breathing belongs to both. So you're sort of getting a hand back on your unconscious body by doing it. The old line in the house of God is that the, the first thing to do in a cardiac arrest is take your own pulse. Well, that has nothing to do with the patient, you say. No, but you can't deal with the patient if you don't deal with yourself. And the most important thing in any emergency is not just dealing with what's in front of you, it's making sure that you are able to deal with it. It's the, you know the old trope about taking care of yourself, putting on your own auction mask. There's no utility in kind of creating a second patient here because then who's going to take care of the patient? T poker players would call it going on tilt. It's when you recognize that someone is starting to kind of unravel and uh, enter an emotional state where their actions are no longer controlled by logic and rationality. They're starting to slip down this slope where they're being driven by this positive feedback loop of, of other emotions, things like panic and fear. And that's the one thing you need to avoid here. So even if you do a poor job of making clinical decisions, it should be poor because of a, a deficit of medical knowledge or something like that. It shouldn't be poor because emotions have disrupted your ability to think rationally. There is certainly also a degree to which it's true that um, making the conscious decision to be calm contributes to your ability to do exactly that. And yes, that is faking emotion, but fake emotions can become real. You know, they used to say that if you want to be happy, try smiling. Yeah, it's backwards, but your body is not always really clear on cause and effect. And, you know, performing actions that are associated with emotion can, can contribute to actually creating that emotion. If you act calm, you may become more calm. And that's definitely true here, although this certainly also contributes to the next thing here. And the next thing is the message you send to others. Calmness is not just something you feel, it's something that you say, so to speak. It's a projection, and because we almost always work in teams, it's an important one. If you are part of a team, and certainly if you are a team leader, and there is an emergency going on, you could either take the, the tone in the room, the level of emotion and energy, and escalate it, or you can take it down a notch. You can throw a blanket over everything and dial it back. If the collective heart rate is 110, you can bring it down to 90, or you can push it up to 130. Which do you want? In almost every case, what you want is to dial it back for the same reason. If people start to yell and start to rush, bad things are going to happen. You can't communicate. You can't slow down and do something conscious and thoughtful. You can't think through problems. This is how you walk into a room where there's a cardiac arrest or something, and it, it just looks like a, like a riot. There's just bodies everywhere. There's just uh, this high level of noise. And if there's anything going on, it's almost just by chance. Everyone's kind of doing little micro tasks on their own. It's not a team. 
and there's a really good chance of errors being made. So when you act calm, you're telling other people that I know you, you thought for a moment that there was an emergency here. There was a crisis. And that's a, a reasonable thought to have. But good news, there's no emergency. We're all just working. There's things to do here. There's tasks to be done. And they probably need to be done right away. But there's no emergency. An emergency is when things are out of control, when things are beyond our ability to deal with them. An emergency is when you should worry, and you should not worry, because we're all here, and we know what to do. This is the, the difference when you have a problem, and you call for help, and the expert shows up. Like in Pulp Fiction, the wolf has arrived. It's okay. Yeah, you were worried, but now it's okay. Help is here. I used to do EMS, and in EMS, the part of the culture is that there is almost an exaggerated, affected um, face, a facade people put on, and to what extent they truly experience and believe it is neither here nor there. But certainly, it needs to be something you project to others of, of exaggerated calmness. You know, paramedics would walk into a 911 scene and, you know, they're one step short of like chewing gum and yawning and, you know, scratching themselves and cracking jokes and just acting like it's, it's just the most boring thing they've done all day. Even if, you know, somebody is on fire and there's a child choking and whatever else. And the reason is, I think, because there's no situation that is as prone and as at risk for devolving into that kind of chaos. Because you're in an uncontrolled setting, you're on the side of the road, or you're in somebody else's house, and it's a bunch of, of lay people and bystanders here uh, who are not used to medical emergencies, and who have just experienced a car wreck, or a gunshot, or their loved one passing out and not breathing. They're already panicking. So you can't come in here and never mind escalate things. That, you know, that is when things really go wrong. That's when people start to really lose it. And I mean, you could be personally in danger, never mind the chance of you actually getting anything done. But you can't even keep it neutral. You need to dial it back. So you need to, you need to grab everyone by their emotional reins and pull them back down four or five notches. And that's what you do by sending this message that like, all right, you know, I know that you thought this was a big deal, but I've seen eight sicker patients and it's not even lunchtime yet. That's the vibe there. Now, I think in other settings, you don't have to go quite so over the top with it. I remember early in my training, I perhaps overshot because that was my background. And, I, you know, I was told once or twice that, you know, by the people who were training me, sometimes you know, people aren't sure if you really get what's going on and, and how urgent it is. And I had to sort of explain, well, yeah, it's, this is just sort of <laughs> the demeanor that I've, I've adopted. You may need to titrate this to the setting. And there may even be some occasions when you need to send a message that you guys are taking this a little lightly. This patient is dying. I need you to step it up a notch. You know, maybe when you recognize a clinical situation, which is not obvious, that something is going on which is actually very dire, but is, is subtle. And you're saying, I need everyone to 
to dial things up and I need things to happen quickly here. But the majority of the time when things are obvious, it's the opposite. So if you can walk into a room and convey that message that everything is okay, things go really smoothly. You know, this is the, the resuscitation where everyone is talking in regular tones. There's not a lot of noise. There's not as many kind of people around. At least that's how it feels like. Even if it's the same number of bodies in the room, it just feels like it's, it's not too crowded. And, and yeah, maybe there's occasional uh, jokes. Maybe there's some leaning. I do a lot of leaning in doorways. Um, it, you need to kind of dial it to the situation, but your goal is for things to be, you know, just on the, on the laid back side of normal, because that's, that's where the right amount of tension is. And it is absolutely true that as a team leader, this is a decision for you to make there's going to be a variety of emotions in the room based on those things we talked about, various personalities and so on. But people take their cues from you. People are looking to you to know when to panic. And the answer has to be never. It's, it's not ever useful for that to happen. So you tell people through your actions and demeanor that things are under control and they'll believe you. It doesn't matter what's happening as long as it's under control. I think it was the Joker who said it in the Batman movie that, you know, as long as you tell people the plan, um, you know, even if it's 12 hours from now, I'm going to blow up a bomb and then it happens. They're sort of okay with it. You know, it's as long as, as long as someone gets what's going on and there's a plan for it, that, that may be a weird, dark example, but I think that applies here too. You know, it seems weird that we're going to have to, crack this patient's chest in the middle of a hallway and do open heart compressions. Um, but you know what? If, if you say that it's, it's normal, then we believe you. It's when we're doing something that we, we don't know how to understand and control that there's panic, even if it's something much more normal and routine. If you send the right message, you can keep people calm through the apocalypse. You need to be the, the string quartet as the Titanic sinks. All right, no more dark examples. The final aspect here is that calm is not just something you feel and not just something you project to others. That projection also comes back to you. You know, there is a, a degree to which you can see or hear or feel what you are doing. And you can see that you are being calm or that you are panicking. Um, that message you send out, it, it kind of bounces back to you. And part of it is because you see those around you. So if you have kept them calm, then they in turn will sort of keep you calm. Whereas if it's the opposite, there's a positive feedback loop. And I think it's also true to some extent that uh, it's, you kind of have a, a third person view of yourself in some cases, you know, even if you're not the most introspective person. So even if, you know, there weren't people around, um, you are kind of seeing yourself just like others are. And if you see yourself starting to lose it, um, that tends to make you lose it more. So, you know, the message you send is also a message that you send to yourself. And, you know, that message, again, needs to be that you are being calm. And that's why even starting from the conscious intentional decision to act calm may convince yourself 
to indeed be calm. You are both sending and receiving that message. The final point I want to make here is that um, the things that tend to be the enemy of calm, the things that tend to cause stress are different for everyone. And this is why, you know, when, when people say things like, you know, I'm, let's say I'm in surprised or impressed that you are so calm during that, or even, you know, when you experience stressful things and you discuss it with people, they hear about it and they say, wow, you know, I, I don't know how you, how you did that, how you can do it. It sounds so hard. You know, oftentimes your reaction might be, you know, it wasn't really that hard. And that's, I think the real secret oftentimes to being calm. Um, you know, if you're having to to fight or struggle to be calm, then yes, you can do it. That's why we're talking about these tools. But the way that we do it most of the time is just by taking the pool of things that stresses us out and shrinking it. Often the things that would trouble you are not the same as would trouble somebody else. There are probably any number of things that would make me stress out and, and maybe even panic. It's just that by and large, they're not medical situations. And again, partly that's maybe because of my personality and partly because I've learned to deal with those things in a way that they are now more routine to me. But if you put me in some more alien circumstances, I can certainly still be bothered by them. And somebody else who comes in and is bothered by these, you know, maybe be, be the opposite. If you have a really well-defined sense for uh, kind of normalness and the way things should be, I think you're a little more susceptible to recognizing that things are bizarre or out of the ordinary and being kind of freaked out by that. Um, if you're the kind of person who thinks it is unworldly to drive against the flow of traffic in an ambulance, it takes a little while for you to get used to that and do it in a calm way. Whereas if your recognition of what's normal is always kind of a learned thing, then you may be uh, more equipped to do something abnormal. And again, much of this is situational. The person who is um, well-equipped for a medical emergency may be the person who has a stress response to public speaking or the person who's a good public speaker may be freaked out if they got into a fist fight or, you know, the fighter may not be able to uh, share their inner emotions with their therapist. You know, these are not all the same skill set. And to some extent, you're fortunate in medicine if medical things are cool with you, but there's still probably going to be something that gets you. Your air of unflappability may be broken when you have to take care of the patient who reminds you of your son or who is uh, very similar in age to yourself or who has a disease process just like the patient where you made a mistake two months ago. There's going to be something. And that's why I think you need to combine, you know, whatever innate uh, resources and quote talent you have for this sort of thing, but also learn skills for dealing with the stuff that does challenge you because there's going to be something. Give it some thought. Calm is both a skill and a talent and either way you need to cultivate it in medicine. Talk to you next time.